Hey guys, Brian Jodis here today talking about Onnit. Onnit is a health and fitness juggernaut dedicated to delivering total human optimization to its vast customer base of athletes, thinkers, fitness gurus, entrepreneurs, and yes, podcasters. Through a wide array of products and supplements, Onnit combines cutting-edge science, earth-grown nutrients, and time-tested strategies to help people reach peak performance. And we have two killer deals for you today. Number one, they're giving away for free a trial of Alpha Brain. All you have to do is pay the shipping and they're hooking you up with free Alpha Brain. No joke. I just took mine with its trademark ingredient blends. Alpha Brain builds an environment in which the brain can operate on all cylinders. You're like a locomotive. All you have to do is click the on it link in the show notes or it's on this show page as well. Click that Alpha Brain on it link and go scoop you up some today. Need other Onnit products? We have you covered there as well. Use the promo code PICK6, P-I-C-K-S-I-X when you shop at Onnit.com and you'll save 10% off just like that. Go to Onnit.com, O-N-N-I-T.com and get after it with the promo code PICK6 or click the link in the show notes for some of that free alpha brain today. On September 11th, 2001, the world changed forever. As we record today, we're wrapping up what can be described as a hellacious week of activity in Afghanistan, the country that provided the backdrop for planning the deadly terror attacks on American soil some 20 years ago. Today, I'm joined by Toby Harnden, and he's been through it all and recounts the first moments following 9-11 in his new book, First Casualty, the untold story of the CIA mission to avenge 9-11. Toby, good afternoon, my friend. Thanks for joining me, man. Hi, Brian. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me on the show. Absolutely. Uh, we're going to jump right into it, man, because it has been uh, a rapid moving week. There's been a lot of developments. You and I were just talking before we hit record about the conversation we had with Zach and what Team America is doing uh, to try to expedite the evac process uh, for dozens, if not hundreds, if not maybe thousands of people uh, still hanging in the balance. And obviously going to talk about this book that you've got set to come out in September called First Casualty, the untold story of the CIA mission to avenge 9-11. Before we talk about current events and kind of where we're at, get your perspective on it, because you've been a part of it for such a long time. You're a former Royal Navy guy that retired in 94, then slid into this world of storytelling and journalism. So just quickly, how's that all kind of transpire for you? Yeah, it's strange. I mean, I know, and I know you have Navy in your family background. Mm -hmm. My father was in the Navy. Um, my grandfather uh, was in the army and I had two great grandfathers who were in the army, sort of World War, one, one of them was World War One, wow. and one of them was like Egypt in the 1880s. Whoa. So I guess it, the, the military was in my blood. And so I guess that makes me fourth generation. Mm -hmm. And um, so I always thought that I would do that. Um, the time I was in the Navy was, in 19, I, so I joined in 1985, left in 94. Um, I joined just after the Falklands War, which was a big deal for the Royal Navy. I mean, we had like two frigates, two destroyers sunk. And, um, you know, I remember joining and seeing people, uh, a lot of Marines and, Welsh Garden with like sort of burnt ears, you know, from, I mean, it was sort of, it, it was, it was an odd time because it was just after this big war for the Navy. Mm -hmm. um, and it was a sort of a period of 
peacetime. I mean, I try. I did the opposite of draft dodging for the for the Gulf War and like really kind of pissed people off by trying to get involved, but they managed to <laughs> to do it without me. So it was. I felt like I was sort of, um, you know, I tra- I did. I traveled all around the world with the Navy. It was great, but there was no sort of combat, and there was a sort of particularly with the Cold War coming to an end. There was a little bit of a sense of. You know what is all it, this is fun and and great and everything, but what what's it all for? And so, um, you know, I was always a bit a bit restless, um, and so I thought I'd try something different. I, um, you know, I had a background in history at college. Um, I'd always liked writing. Um, it seemed to offer sort of adventure, and it certainly did because I, I saw more combat and more kind of sharp end stuff yeah. as a journalist yeah. than, than I did in the navy. Um, so yeah, I mean, I just put my foot in the door and never took it out for 25 years, basically. I said, it feels like you got more downrange time in post-military career, potentially, you know, and in, in, in the real adventures that you got to be a part of, you know, yeah, I mean, there was a time in the Navy and I tried to become a, a UN military observer in Bosnia and they wouldn't let me cause I couldn't be, they couldn't spare me from whatever bill I was in. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, so that, that was actually, I'm done, I'm, I'm done here. And of course, what I didn't know, and, you know, no one knew really was how the sort of world would change. And yeah. so, um, you know, yeah, fast forward to sort of like 2009, I'm in Helmand. And guys who were very much like me, you know, as a new young naval officer, were platoon commanders in Helmand, you know, doing doing stuff that reminded me of the tales I'd heard from my grandfather in, in World War II. So, yeah, I did get to experience it sort of in a different way. We're going to talk about uh, the guys and gals, but really the guys that become the cast of characters in this book, First Casualty, and, and who they are. But let's put some lens of today on it. Uh, and as someone who recounts the activity immediately following 9-11, right, part of your book is is you're moving along with characters that are are part of this as it, as it's all happening, right? And they're the first ones in, right? You're talking about this, right. the CIA team, this alpha team that really are the first ones in, and, and they and one of them proves to be the first casualty. Let's look at all that from the lens of what has transpired here, not only over the last few months, but what has been this rapid acceleration of Taliban takeover in Afghanistan that leaves us in the situation we are in today with this deadline that as we record today on the 27th of August is not but a few days away, and this just beehive of activity that is uh, included with uh, an attack yesterday that takes the lives of 13 Americans and many dozens of Afghans and, and more injured. So just just give me the lens of your perspective of what the hell is happening right now. It's sort of overwhelming. It's like kind of, I don't know, it's like being involved in a sort of tsunami of news. Hmm. And I have the book sort of about to be launched and has been launched in Britain. So, you know, I have all that, but I never expected it to come out in this environment I also have, you know, personal friends. I mean, I count um, some of these former CIA officers, Team Alpha, as sort of personal friends who are very much involved in getting people out. I mean, there's one member of the team, I probably end up writing about this in some form, who, um, you know, teamed up with another one uh, to get the details uh, to Special Activity Center in the um, in the CIA of one of the commanders who fought, you know, top commanders who fought for Dostum alongside the Green Berets and the CIA in 2001 to get him out of the country. And they, and they succeeded just, just incredible. Yeah. And, 
um, I have um, a trans. There's a translator who uh, I worked with um, last November because I was I was in um, Afghanistan, uh, mainly in Kabul, and then also in the north. November, December last year. This great young guy, 29 year old guy. I'm just calling him R at the moment until sure, sure. hopefully until he gets out. Um, but I've been just you know working it everywhere I can to try and get an SIV. Then I was told I need to get a P2. I'm in touch with these these private groups like Zach's group. Um, and one of the Team Alpha guys was just like, okay, give us the name, give us the phone number, give us his whereabouts. I know a guy, he's got people out, leave it with me. You know, it's that kind of thing. And just, I mean, as we're speaking, I'm getting messages from him. He's in a bus. Um, he got a call in the night, uh, early in the morning saying, come to this address, we're gonna take you into the airport. And so that's what we've been hoping for. And of course, what we're dreading for is, it was dreading is the subsequent kind of knock on the door and it's the Taliban drag you out, bullet yeah. in the back of the head. Yeah. So he got the, he got the, he got the call he was hoping for. Um, he's on the bus, he's outside the gate. The latest is, is a US commander saying, only um, Afghan commandos can enter. There's a bit of negotiation going on. There's talk of ice, more ISIS terrorists being in the area. So it's just, you know, it's 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 a nail biter. And, you know, as well as the political and military picture and the tragedy of, of Afghanistan, which, you know, I have a lot of feelings about, it's it's personal, as you, mm -hmm. as you know, and as so many Americans know. And, you know, without getting political, too political, you know, I think it's, um, you know, it's unarguable that the U.S. government, you know, this moment has failed. And what you're seeing is Americans, sort of ordinary Americans who are also extraordinary, just filling the filling the void. And to me, that's kind of immensely uh, moving and heartening about our country. I'm a natural, despite the accent, I'm, a na I'm an American citizen, naturalized American. Mm. And so it's a it's a sort of a dark and depressing period in, in many many ways but i feel that the spirit of the afghans that we're seeing and this and the spirit of americans is 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 coming through and i hope that that will transcend this at uh, this moment yeah it is you're right you know i'm trying there's a moment of vulnerability here right watching all this transpire feeling like there's nothing you can do about it praying that there's continued light in this dark world, knowing that it is, knowing that it is there, right? Knowing that at the end of the day, it'll be there, but you look around at just so much destruction and it's hard to see that, but it's why we're trying to talk to Zach and get updates from him and hear about the 14 people that they got moved through the gate last night, but that they're still struggling because they've had another bus, basically truck outside since three o'clock yesterday, trying to get a moving. So it's right. Trying to get these updates and the timing of all this of me and you getting connected is not by coincidence the way this happens. And I know that in a, in an ideal world, you would have had this book released in September and, and this withdrawal would have been a much different scenario. That just hasn't played out. It's just not right. the reality of where we're at. And, uh, and, and, uh, and while God, it's just, I don't know, man, sometimes it's even hard to talk about just, just what, what a mess it feels like right now, but there is light in those moments of hearing about the countless people who are like, forget it then. I'll do it. I'll fit. We'll figure out a way to make it happen. And that's what people right. are trying to do. My fear is a lot of it is still going to be, there's still going to be a lot of problems and there's going to be a lot of people that are lost in this process. I, I agree with you. Absolutely. And I start, I had a kind of a surge of kind of joy this morning. Um, 
when I got the message from R that he was on the bus. Mm-hmm. And then I, then I started to feel like kind of guilt seeping in. Cause I'm like, he, if he gets, if he gets out, others are not going to get out. Yeah. And he was, he was a translator for, for, you know, a U.S. journalist, but there are probably going to be Afghan commandos and, and people who, you know, spent three years, you know, as interpreters, you know, going down paths, you know, IED sort of seeded paths with U.S. Marines who are, who are going to get their throats lit. And so, you know, there's so many kind of emotions swirling around. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, uh, and our listeners are, are people of action and we'll continue to hammer this over the coming weeks. Cause we're going to be, we're going to be weaving these conversations into the traditional conversations we have here on this podcast, but, but don't let up the gas continue to call yesterday. I told you to call your Congressman and your Senator and tell them to do everything they could to extend the deadline, everything they could do to find every American and anybody that wants to get out, anything they do, could do to get communications to them. The ask today, and this came from Zach as well was, Tell them they need to get the State Department and get them contacting the Americans because they have a list of people that are there that they need to go get. All right. And let's keep with it. All right. Let's pivot to the book a little bit because I want to use some of our time to talk about this incredible document, man, this incredible book that you've written. And I've had the ability. I've got an advanced copy right here and been able to to read through it. And man, you tell an incredible story. And and it's one that is prefaced by this 3,500 plus lives lost from the U.S. and NATO troops in Afghanistan. The worst terrorist attack on American soil in 2001 when thousands of lives are lost and Afghanistan becomes the central point for where it all is planned and carried out by Osama bin Laden and that extended crew. And then there are people that get on the ground right away in 2001. And they're the folks that you're talking about in this book. So tell me a little bit about how this all comes to be and and how the CIA gets involved that quickly and gets moving on it. Yeah. Well, yeah. And it's connected to now as well. I mean, apart from I'm telling you that the eight members of Team Alpha, six still living. And I know one of them is still serving in a senior position and the others who are out are all are all working. And that's a kind of that's the kind of people they are, you know. And I mean, I mean, this podcast is sort of very um, appropriate because, you know, pick up the six. These were the people who on 9-11, you know, the book starts with three of them, you know, one's underwater on special forces diving course, Mm -hmm. one's in the air. Um, He's flying from Tashkent CIA station to London. You know, one's Mike Spann is in CIA headquarters, you know, and and their lives changed like everybody else's. But they knew that they were going to be in the fight. They wanted to be in the fight. They they kind of fought. The first fight was to be in the fight. So Mm -hmm. Mike Spann, just to get there, you know, a, a, a Marine Corps officer um, who's CIA paramilitary. He had uh, his personal life was kind of complicated. He'd been through a messy divorce. He had a baby that was three months old. He, he just remarried. His ex-wife had cancer. Every reason in the world not to go. And uh, he had two young daughters as well. And one of them was sort of in tears. Alison Spance was saying, you know, daddy, why do you have to go? And he's like, what if everybody's daddy said, they they couldn't go somebody needs somebody to protect to the country somebody needs to find out who did this somebody needs to, to to stop it happening again and so um i mean one of the incredible things about this was that um the pentagon has a plan for everything right well they didn't have a plan for afghanistan in 2001 
And um, you Tommy Frank, General Tommy Franks was the commander and he and Rumsfeld butted heads over that. But the CIA had been going in and out of Afghanistan. Well, they hadn't completely, you know, they fought with the Mujahideen. Um, yeah, I mean, you go Mujahideen. back to 1989, right? The CIA has got a track record of success. Having followed right. the Mujahideen, you know, right? Basically speeds up the end of the Cold War right against right. the Soviets. So so if, if there is somebody that's going in, at least they've got that level of experience in this country that nobody really knows much about. Exactly. So the United States kind of left in 1989 because it was seen as a Cold War proxy war. Mm -hmm. And uh, Kurt Lippold explained all this in your podcast very well. He's amazing. To me, there's a real symmetry here. Your first podcast was Kurt Lippold. Your most recent podcast has been the guy's getting Afghans out of, out of Kabul. I mean, there's, there's a, there's a connection between those, those two things. Um, but, uh, sorry, I just lost my track. Oh yes. So so CIA and, um, 89. So the U S kind of left the CIA kept a thread going. They knew that, um, that there was Islamic extremism, um, taking root inside this ungoverned space. They, they obviously, they watched the, 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 um, the Taliban um, come into being. They watched bin Laden. You know, Kofa Black, who was the head of the counterterrorism center, had, had encountered um, Osama bin Laden um, in, uh, in, in Sudan when he was there. So there was this sense, and by the late 90s, again, going back to uh, the USS Cole and and Kurt Lippold, you know, in 2000, there was, you know, the, the, the bomb in, in, in Aden on coal and a, fo- a previous one that had, um, hadn't succeeded with the USS the Sullivans, the embassy bombings. So there was a, certainly a sense within the CIA and more specifically CTC, Counterterrorism mm-hmm. Center, that it was just a matter of time before America got hit, you know. Not so much in the White House, you know, whether you're talking about the Clinton White House or the Bush or, or the new, you know, newly started to the Bush Bush White House. Um, you know, it wasn't wasn't a top priority. But when 9-11 happened, uh, the CIA had already been spent two, two years going into the Panjshir Valley, flying in from Tajikistan in, in, in sort of rickety old MI-17 helicopters to link up with Ahmed Shah Massoud. Obviously, he was assassinated on September the 9th. But they had this kind of toehold in there, and they had a plan of working alongside the, the Afghan resistance, the Northern Alliance. They hadn't linked up. They'd linked up with the Tajiks, not the Uzbeks, but they knew about Dostum and David Tyson, who's one of the you know one of the central figures in the book, was an Uzbek linguist based in Tashkent, who knew all about Dostum. And so it was, you know, the CIA stepped up because the Pentagon didn't have a have a plan. It was going to take them weeks to to, to do it. And so these eight guys and the guys on the other teams, um, CIA teams, about 10 or so of them, just, you know, they went to K2 in Uzbekistan and they, and they flew into the unknown to, to sort it out, to, to work yeah. with tribes, to, to find out what the situation was on the ground and do what they could do. But very little advanced intelligence. And I mean, so much decision-making uh, was delegated to the people on the ground. That, that, that to me is what made uh, made the story so amazing and 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 underlines how incredible these these men were and are. You said the name Mike Span before. He is that first casualty of this. And you talked about how he said, "If I didn't go, you know, if no if no dads went, who would go?" His dad says, "Johnny Span, 
Someone has to go do the things no one else wants to do. That is exactly what he was doing in Afghanistan. It's a quote in the front of your book. You also have the powerful Isaiah 6, 8, here I am, send me. Um, and it really touches close to home. Tell me about these Team Alpha guys and introduce us to Mike Spam. Sure. So there were eight of them. Um, the, the chief was a guy called uh, J.R. Seeger, who uh, at the time, I think he was about 47. He was a case officer. Um, so it's a kind of misconception. Often people think these teams are all par paramilitaries. There were mm -hmm. four paramilitaries on the team out of the eight of them. So, so J.R. was a case officer, a diary linguist. He'd been stationed in Islamabad in the late 80s as a young CIA, CIA officer, former army captain. Um, I think in the 82nd Airborne. And so he'd worked with the Mujahideen in the 80s and he knew the sort of Afghan tribe. So he, he was the he was the chief. The deputy was a guy called Alex Hernandez, who'd been a special forces sergeant major, done a full career, CIA para, paramilitary. You're sort of quintessential kind of senior NCO, uh, sort of albeit at the, the most elite level. Mm -hmm. um, Sort of the brass of the group, kind of the brass of the group. Right, right, right. You know, um, and, you know, his relationship with JR was that classic, you know, officer, not junior officer, but officer NCO sort of mm -hmm. relationship. And, and Alex was the person who, you know, had the most sort of tactical military experience, but deferred to JR on the, the sort of culture and, and, and the languages. There's a guy called Spot, Scott Spellmeyer, who was a paramilitary, a former Army Ranger, there's a guy called Andy, who is still serving in the CIA, the only one out of the eight still serving, um, who was a former Special Forces uh, reservist. You have Mike Spann, former Marine officer. You had a guy called Mark Rausenberger, um, who was uh, the medic, again, former Army, uh, who sadly died on CIA um, operation in the Philippines in, in, in 2016. Actually, subsequently did become mm -hmm. a paramilitary move from being a medic to paramilitary. Um, Justin Sapp, who uh, is still serving as a colonel, a Green Beret colonel, who was then a young 29-year-old captain. Uh, so they wanted, they didn't have quite, they didn't have enough paramilitaries and they also wanted a Green Beret on the team to, 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 to liaise with the, with the ODA that was, was coming in. Mm -hmm. um, and David Tyson, who, another case officer, um, a really interesting guy, you would never, very unassuming, you would never pick him out of a crowd, uh, very humble, um, a kind of a very gifted linguist. He was an academic um, He at Indiana University working on Central Asian studies, uh, joined the agency late, you know, in, I think he was about 36 by the time he joined. Um, and uh, a very, very sort of quirky guy. He was the least militarily, he'd be in the art, two, two short stints in the army, but the least experienced militarily of the eight. And he was the one who um, ended up uh, being in the fort of Kalajang Kalajangi with Mike Spanner and had to shoot his way out. So mm. that sends a shiver down my spine, just thinking about it, what he had to, what he had to go through uh, with, you know, relatively little military experience. How... How connected do you get to these guys? Because you can feel it come through on the pages and even just hearing you speak about it. Well, that's good to hear because I certainly do feel it. And and I do want to com communicate that because um, I've been caught up in the last, you know, couple of weeks. You know, I've done CNN hits and Fox and MSNBC. Yeah. And obviously that's all good stuff. And you're trying to do that. But all they're asking about is really sort of the politics 
um, the last 20 years in Afghanistan, you know, the mistakes, what, what's happened. But this is a story about people. It's a human story about characters. And yeah, I mean, the people on that team, an amazing sort of cross section of, of people like so i mean sometimes if you know sometimes i you know if you um if you cover the military um you know there are certain sort of types and it, because it's you know it's a, it's a sort of a regimented system um you know the individuality sometimes doesn't come through but cia people are quirky you know they're they're different and uh, and they're contrary and they have emotions and they sort of do what they want to do and some things they don't want, you know, they, they're just not going to do and that's it. Um, and so, you know, David Tyson, um, uh, you know, I became very close to um, because there's an incredible amount of trust. I mean, this was for him a life defining experience. I mean, I don't know how many people he killed on that day and, and he doesn't know, but you know, it was dozens, you know, it mm -hmm. was between, two dozen and 50, you know, in, in a very short space of, of time. And he, and he saw his comrade, um, killed, um, in front of his eyes and he saw Af Afghan allies, um, dead as well. And so, you know, you start off by, well, it's, first of all, it took me about seven years to persuade him to talk to me properly. Yeah. yeah <laughs> uh, I can only imagine. And I eventually kind of got a call of like, Hey, you know, I'll talk. And then you start off and, you know, you get some of the surface things and, you, you know, you sort of try and establish the timeline and the, the facts and what, what's been printed that's wrong. And there was a lot that was, mm -hmm. that was wrong. And I mean, one of the great things about David and, and the other, other uh, CIA guys as well is that they're prepared to go deeper. And David, I mean, in the end, there's almost nothing he wouldn't talk about. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, killing people and, you know, he had the option of, it was kill or be killed. It was very simple. You know, yeah, he didn't have the true. sort of the dilemma, the sort of the choice really. But, you know, that's a very personal thing to talk about. A lot of people for very good reasons don't want to talk about it. Sometimes people have a kind of macabre fascination about it, but it's so central to him. Um, and it's so central to what happened there that, you know, I, I certainly wanted to explore it. And David was, I mean, he spent the last 20 years thinking about it. He still, he has nightmares six days out of seven. Uh, he can remember the faces of, of, you know, a lot of the people. And, but he was prepared to sort of explore his own psyche, if you like, you know, why he did. And, and also there's no sort of grandiosity about him. Mm -hmm. You know, he was like, yeah, you know, people say I'm brave and stuff. Well, I just did what I had to do. And the next day, you know, well, two days later, I was so scared. My rifle was banging against yeah. a tank, you yeah. know, and I was, you know, almost pissing my pants about going back into the fort. So he's, he's sort of like a very special person, but he's also every man. And to be able to just sort of sit on his front porch in rural Virginia and, and talk to him about what he'd been through, how he felt about it, the different kind of, uh, phases he'd been through with this experience was just an incredible experience for me.
Yeah, those are the stories that that jump out of this book. It's called First Casualty, set to release in early September here. Uh, and if you're talking stateside to be able to get it, uh, I don't want to give them every detail of it because we want them to go out and get it in September and to be able to read this thing. David becomes just uh, such an incredible uh, p- part of this. And you talked about that pivotal moment uh, where he's there uh, when his teammate and friend is killed. And that's Mike Spam, the first casualty of this effort. So tell me a little bit about Mike and what happened on that day. So Mike, 32-year-old, um, former Marine Corps officer who joined the CIA as a paramilitary in 1999, so relatively new. He'd gone to the farm, uh, the CIA training facility just outside Williamsburg, Virginia. Um, when he was there, he'd, he'd met his wife, Shannon Spann, who uh, was um, a, a young case officer, very different from Mike. Mike was from Alabama, um, uh, you know, Southern conservative, um, sort of a black and white sort of character, you know, on the, that's how he will present, but certainly a lot of complexity underneath the, 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 um, the surface. Shannon was a lawyer from California, kind of graceful, kind of mm-hmm. smooth. Um, so they were sort of an unlikely pairing, um, both being divorced. Mike had two daughters, um, but sort of kind of whirlwind sort of couple of years. Um, she falls pregnant, uh, they get married, you know, not in the order they would have planned. Sure. Um, and he, he identified very strongly as a Marine. He was ripped. He was extremely fit. He was intense. He was driven. He was determined to get out there. Um, I mean, there's a guy called Brian in the book who is still serving as in a very senior position. He was a fellow Marine of Mike's. And he said to me that, you know, we miss Mike to this day because he would have been, he would, his belief was that he would still be in the agency and he would have had an incredible contribution over the last 20 years. So Mike was there. He was meticulous. He would stay up all night, um, like formulating questions for prisoners that had been captured. Um, He was, uh, you know, one of the two of them who wanted to go into the fort that day, November 25th, 2001, and questioned the Al-Qaeda guys. He, uh, I think, of the eight of them, was the most fired up about, I mean, they all were, but probably might the most, about 9-11, getting the people who did it. Vengeance, part of it, but really going on the offense and and stopping it happening again. Yeah. And so he was that kind of quiet, understated guy wasn't easy to get get through to him he didn't sort of discuss his emotions i mean he'd been you know he'd been through some messy stuff um but you know universally admired and you know it was just this huge shock you expect people to be killed in this sort of environment but it happened you know just really just after the taliban had fallen and i wouldn't say that Anybody thought anybody there was invincible, but of all the people you thought that Mike Spam would be, would be a survivor. There, uh, it echoes um, some similar characteristics uh, of one Mike Murphy, um, and yeah. and the way his buddies recounted um, his ability to lead and uh, and what those final moments are like, and how he ultimately goes up on that ridge to make that call and and. And it sounds like from reading, Mike ends up at the bottom of a pile in the middle of a hand-to-hand fight. And right. the way it goes down in his final moments. It's powerful. Right. But when these, I mean, 
that moment, which I guess is the pivotal moment, you know, in the book, um, you know, Mike Spam went down fighting, you know, fighting, literally yeah. fighting. Till Absolutely. The end. And when, you know, and, and when he called out, he, so he used his rifle, he used his pistol. He took, he took a few people out. Uh, he could have just run, you know, most of the, I mean, again, if you look at parallels to now, most of the Afghans ran, um, he didn't. And David Tyson didn't either. He heard, you know, Mike shout out Dave, Dave, Dave. And, you know, I mean, the way David describes it is it was all sort of involuntary, mm. but really I think it's part of your sort of your character, your core, that he ran towards Mike Spann and that pile of Al-Qaeda guys on top of him and, and not away. And so, you know, in these moments of extremists, that's when I think the, the sort of true nature of, of people um, comes out because you never, you know, no matter how much training you've done, you never quite know uh, how you're going to perform when you're really tested. Yep. I think that's one thing I battled with over the last week is seeing a lot of friends and people I respect who are ready to run in who right now can't, you know, and they're ready to run into the fray uh, and help people. It's an incredible book, my friend. I'm so glad we've been able to talk about it. Tell us what the plan is for release where folks can learn more about it. Uh, there's an excerpt on your website that I highly recommend our listeners go check out and then get in line to order this thing. So give me the details on that. Sure. Well, I'm trying to be very easy to find right now. Um, so the website is uh, Toby Harden, T-O-B-Y-H-A-R-N-D-E-N.com. Um, and there's links, as you say, to the excerpt and, 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 and where to buy the book. I'm on Twitter as at Toby Harden. I'm on Instagram. It's all the, the portal into it is, is the website. And, um, you know, I, I try to be um, responsive. I mean, part of the thing I enjoy about this is getting feedback from readers and, and, and sort of starting the discussion. I, I don't see myself as some kind of person on high. You know, there'll probably be, um, well, I hope there won't be factual mistakes, but, you know, there might be, you know, things where there's more to it than I found, you know, and uh, so I, I, I like to um, keep the conversation going and that and, and the sort of the back and forth with readers, I, I find, um, you know, at the very least, you know, it, it kind of informs you for the next book and gives you something to think about. And you sort of mature as a writer and as a as an interviewer and as a as a teller of stories. Before we go to wrap it up, it's hard to summarize it all and think about kind of where we go from here. But again, with the lens of where we are right now, knowing you've got this thing coming out in a few months, I mean, the world is, has changed quite rapidly since you've probably finished penning this piece. That's rather yeah, incredible. Yeah, although I read, of course, one of the terrible thing, terrible fears of an author is that the book is overtaken by events between, you know, pressing the button. For Boy, I, I sure don't think I mean, so. I, th I think now more than ever, you want to dig back in and read back over what happened. Yeah, absolutely. And also, I mean, I... You know, I did a preface, at the, which was sort of what what's this about? What's the big picture of this? Why is it important? And I could have done a prologue. I mean, the, the two previous books I've done, um, I did a sort of a action-packed prologue as the way in. Mm -hmm. But this time I decided to do something more, sort of take a step back. And I'm really glad I did. And I read it the other day and I thought, actually, that holds up pretty well. Um, but so... Yes, I think to understand what's happening now, you need to go back to the beginning. Because, I mean, it's astonished me, really, partly because I guess a lot of journalists are 
they're kind of young and they don't really remember 9-11, but how little 9-11 is, right. in the, yeah. is, is in the conversation here. But we need to go back to, the, back to the beginning, why we went in, how the mission changed, you know, how we went from sort of a counter-terrorism, light footprint mission to a nation-building, uh, sort of building a centralized democracy mission, conventional troops from 2002. So that's, I think, very important. Um, but, you know, great stories, I think, are enduring no matter what is, what is happening. And, I mean, there's a couple of things that give me hope. I mean... Three, really, we already mentioned, you know, sort of Americans stepping up. One thing is uh, the spirit of the Afghans and this, you know, uh, Amrullah Saleh, the former vice president, who, you know, I think, you know, with some justification describes himself as the current legitimate president is in the Panjshir Valley with Ahmed Shah Massoud's uh, son. You know, so the flame of resistance mm -hmm. is there. I think the Afghan people... Um, Sure, lots of imperfections with what we did there the last 20 years, but we did give people a better life. We did give them a glimpse of freedom and modernity. And I don't think the Taliban can change that. They're, they're going to have, I hope, a world of pain trying to trying to govern this country. And mm -hmm. I would not put any money on, on them succeeding because I think there's so many Afghans that are just not going to stand for Sharia law um, and all this stuff. And so I think... Um, I mean, and the other thing, the other thing I think that gives me hope sort of back home again is clearly there's a huge political divisions in, in, the, in this country and it's become very polarized and kind of depressing. There's almost nothing you can sure. say without yep. half the people shouting at you. And, and then you end up sort of saying, well, I'm just not going to say things then. But, you know, but Biden has, has justifiably um, taken some hits on this and I think there are reasons why you can criticize President Trump as well, the, the, the agreement with the Taliban in, in Doha. And there's lots of blame to go around. Mm -hmm. And sure, you'll get people on the sort of, on both sides who, they'll always be for the team. They're red team or blue team. And sure. What, sure. whatever argument they could deploy to attack the other, they, then they'll do that. But I'm experiencing, I'm feeling a lot less of that right now. I mean, there's, I feel there's a sort of a bipartisan desire to help the Afghans. Um, I feel that there's um, a lot of people who thought, well, we should just leave and just get, like, you know, the Biden policy, I guess, are now thinking like, whoa, actually, well, you know, maybe it's not quite so simple. So I'm feeling there's, there's a little humility will be too mm -hmm. strong, but there's a little bit of like, okay, you know, um, you know, we can agree, we can disagree on some of the, the details here. But big picture, America should have America is a positive force in the world and, and needs to continue to be involved. Um, we have a, a, a debt to the to these Afghans. Mm -hmm. So maybe, you know, maybe there's just the glimmers of a bit of kind of unity in the in the country yeah. um, again. And, you know, these are dark days. I mean, you know, 13, you know, I mean, this book was called it's, it's called First Casualty. I mean, we just had 13. I hope they're the last casualties. We've just had 13 casualties out there. It's a, it's, it's a humiliation for America. It's, you know, it's a, it's a depressing moment. But, you know, if you look at Americans, you look at the people in Team Alpha, you look at the across Green Berets and military, civil society here, it's a great country with incredible people who, who want to do things. And so I guess to end on a positive note, I, I think the spirit of people 
of the enduring spirit of people gives, gives me hope for the future. Amen, brother. Couldn't say it any better myself. The title of the book is First Casualty, The Untold Story of the CIA Mission to Avenge 9-11. He's Toby Harden, the author of that, uh, paints an incredible picture and one worth reading. And the timing couldn't be any better, really, for you guys to dig in and read about these heroes that said, send me. That at the beginning of this conflict said, send me. And those that ultimately paid the price for that, but were willing to do it. Let's remember that. Let's celebrate their lives. Toby, thank you so much for sharing with us today. Thank you, Brian. Very good to be uh, with you on the podcast. He's Toby Harden. I'm Brian Jodis. And this has been Pick Up the Six Podcast. <laughs>